It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone and welcome to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advanced B2B. It's your host here Edward Ford and joining us today on the show is Corey Haynes, Head of Growth at Bear Metrics. Now this episode is all about the five factors of growth for profitable SaaS businesses as Corey takes marketing back to its first principles and talks us through different mental models to help us rethink the way we think about marketing. Now first principles thinking is all about breaking down complex problems into the most basic foundational forms and essentially reverse engineering solutions and this is exactly what Corey has done with his profitable growth model for SaaS businesses which is comprised of these five factors, those being market, product, model, messaging and proposition, and channels. We explore these one at a time before Corey talks us through how he and the Bear Metrics team applied this model and first principles thinking to the growth of their own business. And of course, make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode where Corey takes on our Fast Five Challenge. So here is episode number 41 of the Growth of Podcast with Corey Haynes, Head of Growth at Bear Metrics. Welcome to another episode of the Growth Hub Podcast, and it's my pleasure to welcome Corey Haynes to the show, Head of Growth at Bear Metrics. So, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Growth Hub Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to this one. And today we're talking about the five factors of growth for profitable SaaS businesses, those being market, product, model, messaging and proposition and channels. But I think before we actually jump into those, how did you identify these as being the five factors of growth in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it mostly, it really started with my own experience heading up growth at Parametrics. Um, so I've been, uh, I've been with Parametrics for, for the last year. And when I started, I was really just trying to do an audit of kind of like the current state of things and then break down what are the levers that I can pull. And so I'd gotten really into mental models, um, which is another rabbit hole we could probably go down another time, and essentially tried to conceptualize, you know, what, what are all the things that I can do, and, and really what's the most fundamental things I can do and, and look at to see everything as a whole. Um, and Elon Musk, you know, there's always got to be Elon Musk uh, referenced in a podcast. He talks about uh, when he was starting, you know, Tesla, SpaceX, SolarCity, all these really innovative companies, how he started with uh, with first principles. And so it's basically... Uh, a mental model where you break something down into its most fundamental uh, foundational elements. And then you can use that to essentially reconstruct it into something better than, than it was before. Um, so we made, you know, the, the luxury electric car, the reusable rockets that are fraction of the cost, et cetera. So I was trying to think, you know, what are the absolutely necessary factors for growth if you removed everything else from, from the equation? Um, and I just found that these five were the most necessarily uh, the most absolutely necessary factors because without any one of them, growth wouldn't be possible. Um, it, it's not capital, right? Because even bootstrapped or barely profitable companies have grown into huge, massive businesses. Uh, it's not talent because people go, come and go all the time. Uh, co-founders leave, et cetera. Um, so these five, you know, the market product model, et cetera, are sort of the, the basic ingredients, if you will, that you need for the recipe to work um, without any of them. The, they, they don't. It's sort of like an interdependent system is the way I like to describe it. Um, a couple of good examples, right, is the, the, usually the two I see the most often in a lot of SaaS companies is 
You can have a really fantastic product, a really strong kind of product-led team, and you can have all the other factors except for good messaging and positioning, and no one's going to understand why they should give you a shot, and your growth is going to be really, really, really tough. Or you could have a really fantastic product and a super compelling story, but you're monetizing customers the wrong way. Like You might be using per-user-based pricing when in actuality that doesn't make any sense for you, um, and so that's going to stunt your growth as well. So basically you can you can kind of stress test like what are all the things that I need uh, and, and if you remove any one of those five then you're gonna find it's not gonna happen and so you need um, you need those five for growth to really get rolling and have them all working in conjunction with each other too yeah I love it so we're going back to first principles of marketing yeah. and growth here I love it and uh, so to start let, let's dig into factor one so so this is the market so why does growth start with customer research and an understanding of market conditions? I, I heard the other day, uh, super good. Well, I forget who, who it was, otherwise I'd give them credit. But um, it said, hobbies start with an idea. Businesses start with a customer. Um, it's hard, like sometimes we forget, but a business doesn't exist without a customer. It doesn't exist without any customers to buy the thing that you provide, whether it's a product or a service or you know, any sort of blend of the two. And it matters who that customer is as well. You know, uh, Sahil of, um, of Gumroad, uh, he talks about how you have to choose the right market and that most of growth is actually pretty dependent on the growth or the size of your market. And I think that's actually a lot more true than a lot of companies realize. Um, so think about, you know, who your customer is, how many of them are there, you know, what's their budget like, how do they buy things? Are there more people like them every year or are there less people like them every year? Um, and also get to know everything you possibly can about who that customer is, right? So don't just, you know, oh, here's my total addressable market and it, it's businesses with these kind of firmographics or people with these kind of demographics, and these job titles. Get really into details about who those people actually are and get to know them on a personal basis. Something that, um, that I've been thinking a lot about recently is how there's basically two types of companies that I've noticed and, and, that, and that I talk to. There's one, the companies who guess and two of the companies who do customer research. And guessing is not a good strategy, right? You, you, it's kind of a recipe for disaster. You don't wanna be doing that. And your customers will tell you everything you want to know if you just know how to ask. So, so talk to them, you know, sit down one-on-one -on -one over a video chat, have a list of questions in front of you, but keep it conversational, you know, research them, survey them. Um, and then you also always have the option to go into new markets. Uh, you, know, you can go up market into bigger businesses, you know, down market into smaller businesses to decide other types of businesses as well. Um, but you can't ignore uh, the market that you're targeting. It's, it's really important. Um, in fact, my, my friends over at uh, Grove Convert, I know this reference, <laughs> Penji and, and David said that, uh, they said that the hard part about product market fit isn't the product, it's the market. Um, I think that's really true or more true than we think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to add to that, that, that I can't stress enough the importance of customer research. And I think a couple of good previous episodes, if people want to go a bit deeper into that after listening to, to this episode is the one with Claire Solentrop on how to do customer mm. research. And then our most recent episode with Caitlin Borgoyne on how to identify your customers buying triggers are definitely worth, worth checking out after this. But uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And like you said there, it's all about product market fit and that's the, the challenging market side, but that leads us nicely into the second factor, which is product. So how do you then ensure you actually create something of value and how does marketing then work with product to communicate that value back to the market? 
Yeah, so I'll start with, uh, why don't we start with creating something of value first? But I, I think we can all hopefully agree uh, that you can't have a crap product, right? Hopefully I can say crap on the, on the podcast, but- You can say uh, crap. Uh, I think um, it was April Dunford, who we'll also talk about later. She said, you can't polish a turd, which I think is amazing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think, you know, contrary, contrary to what a lot of marketers think, you can have a say on the product roadmap. Um, and especially with all the customer research that you're doing and competitive analysis, uh, you know, kind of keeping a finger on how people are, are reacting to things. Um, you should be advocating on behalf of your customers and, and potential customers too. And one way to think of, you know, the features and the things you should be advocating for um, is you can think of it like on a matrix of uh, how big a problem is and how frequently that problem occurs. And so you want to build a product and features that solves big frequent problems um, or at least small frequent problems or, or big rare problems. But you never want to build stuff that's uh, small and rare because it's just it's not important. It's not a recipe for um, for a business. Uh, also, another good way to kind of take this to another level um, is to imagine another matrix. You like how I'm using all these mental models uh, of differentiation and demand. And so, build features again that are high demand and really help you stand out, who are highly differentiated, or at least build you know low demand, highly differentiated features that kind of help to acquire some customers or help for this use case or that use case, um, or build high demand, low differentiated features. Maybe those are kind of like the checkbox feature parity kind of uh, features that everyone asks for, but don't really help you stand out. But again, don't build features that no one cares about and don't help you stand out. Um, so those are two good ways to think about kind of what to build and, and how to advocate for your customers. And then as far as communicating that value, uh, get super crystal clear about what makes you stand out and what your competitive advantages actually are um, as a product. So, uh, and also if you don't have any competitive advantages, go get some, right? uh, go back to the product team. Um, and that can actually be some really, it's probably normal, more, I laugh about it, but it's probably no, more normal than most people think. Um, so go back to the product team, advocate on behalf of your customers. But um, let's assume that you do. I think this bleeds a lot into uh, well, it bleeds, some of it bleeds into the messaging and positioning portion a little bit, but I think the main thing here is for marketers to have seat at the table with the product team. So it's not just a handoff from one team to another, right? Where it's just like, okay, here's this thing that we built and now like go figure out how to, you know, roll this out or talk about it or post it on social media, et cetera. Um, but if they are both on the same page throughout the entire process from beginning to end, educating each other, getting feedback from each other, um, helping each other think things through. Um, you know, it, it's not that hard to actually communicate what the product team has built when you've had a seat and you've had a voice since they started on it. Um, so anyway, I, I think the main thing there is just to get yourself involved earlier early in the process, really understand why features are being built, sit in on the calls, um, and I, I think your job will be a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. And even myself, I, I literally just had a call before we recorded this podcast with a client who created a case study and we got some really good feedback for additional features that I will then relay back to the product team. So yeah, that open communication channel and having a seat at the table is super important. And I personally am also a big fan of matrix framework. So I'm loving this discussion. And I think the big frequent problems, I, I seem to remember Des Trainer has spoken about this. Yeah. And he, mm -hmm. he had a, he had right. a good, good presentation about that. So we can link to that in the show notes. And, and I think from here the the product and the market, we then, move on to models. So once you've identified which market you're operating in, your customer, develop your product, how does that impact your business model, which is I think often where I think the customer journey and the marketing funnel meet. So things such as pricing, 
activation, onboarding, and your sales model, for example? So, yeah, um, I think the model uh, is probably the least favorite one for marketers to talk about. It's sort of like the, it's pretty literally the middle child of the group, if you will. Um, but I think it's mostly because it's the least intuitive one of them all. Um, it takes a lot of, like, uh, it takes a lot of thought and work and effort. It's not as kind of, let's just go talk to our customers or you, you can't, that's a part of it, obviously, as well. But it's probably the least kind of um, uh, innately natural to just kind of come up with something great or to figure out what the best one is for you. Um, so the tendency is to sort of just pick something, right? It seems like all the freemium companies eventually go up market and they hire a sales team and go on to enterprise. All the enterprise companies eventually go at a free plan and, um, and lower their prices over time. One competitor increases the prices, another decreases. Anyways, it's hard to tell what you should be doing. Um, and, and most people just kind of react to what other companies are doing in the space. Um, so I, I think there's, we can kind of break it down into three parts that actually make it pretty simple. Uh, one is to choose the value to price ratio that you want to deliver on and then reverse engineer how you can get there. Two is to choose the activation model that converts the most customers. And three is to find the minimum path to value. So I'll break down each of these, but we'll start with pricing. Um, Warren Buffett, a uh, really smart guy, very rich. He said that price is what you pay, value is what you get. I think that's super, like if you can just have that one thing for like pricing in general, like I think you can figure it out okay. So figure out how to put a number on how much value your market is getting from your products, probably through customer research, and then figure out how much of that value you want to charge for. So say for example, you know, your product completely replaces uh, an accountant, we'll just say. An accountant could cost $60,000 a year, but if you charge $60,000 a year for your product, you're not actually saving them any money or creating extra value or, or giving them a reason to, uh, to switch to you. Um, and that would be like a one-to-one value-to-price ratio. But if you can cut their costs in half to $30,000 a year, say, for example, or even $20,000 a year, that's a great deal for your customer. And, and it's also win-win because now they're getting double the value for what they pay you, and you're getting paid as well. Um, I'll give you another example really quick because uh, it's super recent and relevant right now. So Fairmetrics has an add-on product called Recover, which helps you reduce failed charges and different return. It's essentially like a, a dunning tool. Um, and we crunched the numbers the other day because we're making a big feature update on it. And we found that on average, uh, across our customer base, our customers recover 38 times more money than they pay for the tool. And for some customers, it's like 90 times, right? So it's a no-brainer for, for customers. Um, and, and we like that value-to-price ratio that we're delivering on. Um, so I'm not going to touch on all the pricing models because I actually think that's a little bit more self-explanatory and probably not the hardest part of everything. Um, but I will talk about the activation models because the only goal should be to figure out which model, whether it's freemium, free trial, uh, paid trial, money back guarantee, your consultation. And those are probably like the most common five that I see. Um, the goal is to figure out which of those converts the most customers, not the most leads, but the most customers. And the perfect example of this is Superhuman. Actually, Bear Metrics customer, a great company. Um, they're kind of hot in the space anyway, so I figured it'd be, it'd be fun and uh, fitting to talk about. But Superhuman costs $30 a month, right? Does that mean that you can sign up and get started for free? Because it's sort of a, a consumer tool and it's on the lower end of this price spectrum? No. In fact, they meet and onboard every single customer and they have a wait list as well. And you have to kind of like fight and claw your way up the wait list just to get someone to meet with you so you can start paying for their product. Because that's what they've found converts the most customers. Now, they also do have an enormous wait list, which you can kind of classify as like a lead. But 
That's what they found conversing those customers and also uh, conversing in the customers that stay for a long time too, right? They're not just churning out after a month because like, ah, it's just an email client. I'm going to do something else, but they're really educating you on here's how you use it. Here are the keyboard shortcuts. Um, let's practice together. Let, let me help you set up your, your account with you. Um, and then lastly, uh, finding the minimum path to value. So most onboarding focuses on, you know, highlighting features and showing people how to use all the bells and whistles, but users don't really want to see that stuff. And that's, that's mainly why I see them, right? Just click through all the little things really quickly, just that pop up just because uh, they want to understand how this tool is going to help them do a very specific job that they have in mind. Um, I, I kind of think back like today versus maybe like 10 years ago or even five years ago and the days of, doodling around and trying out different software products just for fun are long gone. Like those days are over. People have an agenda, they have something in mind and they need to validate that, that idea they have that this software product can do that thing for them. Um, so again, using probably customer research and knowing the reasons why people sign up for your products, figure out how to show them that your product can in fact do what they want it to and the least amount of steps possible. Right? doesn't matter if it's an onboarding wizard, tooltips, explainer videos, whatever. It, it, it actually really does not matter at all. As long as you're pushing them to get that experience with the least amount of work required, you don't have to show all the, the features. You don't have to highlight different things um, to get them up the full picture. You just need the, to get them to the most critical uh, sort of aha moment, if you will, is kind of the most common term that we use. Yeah, that's awesome. And that 38 times recovery is incredible. I was reading about that on Twitter uh, the other week. And, and I think the superhuman onboarding experience is really turning onboarding and the go-to-market model on its head. So, so just to recap those three points, so it's the one value to price. Secondly, the activation model where you need to focus on customers generated, not leads, which marketers can do occasionally. And then the third point is the minimum path to value. And I think this really comes back to your go-to-market strategy. So if you're interested in learning more about this, this difficult middle child, the model, then uh, definitely check out an article called The Mission Matrix, which is actually another matrix framework mm. on uh, advanced B2B, as that goes pretty deep on this topic. Uh, but from here, we move to factor four, which is a topic I love, and I think maybe many other marketers will love as well, which is the actual messaging and positioning side of things. So how do you actually position and differentiate against direct and indirect competition, craft effective copy, and essentially stand out from a sea of noise. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to check out that article as well. Um, but a messaging and positioning, this is probably, to be honest, the, the, the hardest one to actually execute on. It requires some really, you know, some real critical thinking. And it's essentially like an art. It's not really as scientific and kind of, you know, data driven. Um, there's a lot of data involved, obviously, but it's not as, it's not like the other things, you know, in marketing, if you will. Um, and I'm also going to go ahead and admit that everything that I'm about to say is a result of uh, Donald Miller's Building a Story Brand book uh, and April Dunford's obviously awesome. Um, just add those to your Amazon cart. Don't ask any questions and uh, and you'll, you'll understand why later. Um, but I'll, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. I think here's the thing about it. Messaging is about telling a story and, and crafting something that people resonate with, that they can hear, that's entertaining even. And positioning is about making an argument. It's about uh, taking someone through a logical step of here's why uh, essentially, you know, I'm right for you. So you put them together and you kind of get this formula of uh, storytelling plus defensible arguments equals good messaging and position. And that's super oversimplified. Um, but uh, there's another framework from uh, Amy Hoy. So shout out to Amy um, called pain dream fix, which I've been really loving recently has make it made my life a lot easier. Um, 
And it really helps you kind of loop these two things together and, and tell a story with these defensible arguments. So basically you start with the pains, um, the problems that people encounter, you empathize with what they're experiencing and prove, uh, especially prove that you understand where they are and what they're going through. And then you paint a picture of a better world, right? You show them how others have alleviated, alleviated those pains, uh, they've gotten rid of those problems, they've overcome all the obstacles, and you really get to know what they want and, um, and at the core of it, right? And prove that you know their end goal. And then you talk about how your product helps them fix their problems and achieve their goals, right? And why your product is the best, or maybe even the only product to help them do that and achieve that. And notice how uh, your product isn't doing it for them, right? It's empowering them to do it. It's, it's the superpower, it's the bridge, it's, it's basically the tool they need to accomplish it. And I think the mistake that a lot of marketers make is they jump straight to the fix, right? They just talk about what the product is and how it works and all the bells and whistles again. You know, you read stuff like um, the ARP, complex machine learning algorithm uh, does this and look how shiny this other random feature is over here. But it's like, it, no one cares without the context of the pains and the problems it fixes and how it helps them achieve what they actually want. They're all meaningless. No, no one cares about your features and all the bells, bells and whistles. Um, so to answer your question about, you know, what makes uh, really great positioning helps you differentiate against uh, direct and indirect competition. I think a lot of it, uh, again, comes down to being able to tell a story that people resonate with. So using that pain dream fix um, and then really going back to the product, like getting down to the core of what makes you stand apart. Why do customers choose you over uh, over competitors? And again, the, the fun part is that you can literally go ask customers, hey, why did you choose us over you know, X or, or Y or Z option? Or even why did you choose us over doing it yourself or um, hiring it out to someone else to do manually or outsourcing it maybe to you know, an agency or some sort of uh, virtual assistance service possibly as well. Um, and if you can really get crystal clear on what are the unique things uh, that, that you come to, to market with and then who cares about those things as well, and communicate that in a story with a defensible argument of here's why we are the best solution for you to help you achieve your goals and fix your pains. Um, I think that it's uh, it, it can be a really nice combination for you and, and uh, do a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in building a story brand, this is where the author talked about the customer being the hero, the protagonist of the story. So the Luke Skywalker and you as a company are just the, the advisor, the the Yoda and, and their big challenge is the, uh, is the sort of Darth Vader um, out there. So yeah, this is great. And of course, we're huge fans of April as well. We had her on the show earlier. So, so go listen to her episode on positioning uh, after this and check out her book as well. Um, and yeah, I think this is definitely challenging, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity there for marketers to, to really think critically about your positioning and your messaging. And uh, I think it's at times overlooked as well in terms of an actual factor of growth. So um, yeah, super good. And, and I think then this leads us on nicely to the fifth and, and final factor, which is channels. And now I think we're getting a little more tactical. So how do you then actually identify unique and effective channels for your own growth and as a way to actually build up your competitive moats? Yeah, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but customer research <laughs> really is a super effective way to find channels um, and ideas that you probably never would have thought of otherwise. Um, but uh, I, I can't really talk about that because that's going to really depend on you and your business. So just, you know, sit down with them, ask them, uh, ask some questions, you know, like what are the the blogs that you read and the podcasts you listen to the websites that you go to often, 
who do you trust in your industry and who do you go to for help? You know, what kind of topics and things do you wish that more people talked about in your space that would really help you with your job? Um, uh, you know, how do you go search for things? How do you make a decision? How, tell me about the last time that you bought a new software tool. Um, why did you need it? How'd you come to it? Who was involved in the process? Um, but so that's going to all kind of depend on you. But as far as uh, thinking a little bit more strategically about, you know, finding channels that work for you, what I encourage people to do is, is not just think of channels as sort of engine that you just keep kind of fueling, and, but think of it as a competitive moat that you, it's like kind of like this wall or this, this uh, you know, literally like, like a water moat or channel that you put in between you and, and all the other competitors. And because it's one thing, I think it's one thing to have a channel that works well for you, but it's another to have, or to make it really hard for anyone else to be successful with that channel um, as well. So I'll give you some, a couple examples. Veramatrix uh, has really taken advantage of and helped facilitate the open startups movement, right? We own transparency. We own the phrase, the idea behind it, the thought. Uh, we own basically, you know, we're kind of like one of the, I guess, like uh, one of the leaders, one of the, one of the helpers um, for this community of people who are all about sharing metrics openly and sharing company culture openly and, and, uh, and being transparent, right? And you can't just copy that and have the same success again. In fact, if you did, you'd probably make yourself look really bad because that's a bare metrics thing. Another really interesting example um, is with Drift, uh, with their Seeking Wisdom pod podcast, which I think personally um, was probably one of the, the biggest like catalysts for them in getting out to market and becoming a bigger brand and gaining a lot of customers uh, because it, one, it was really successful also, but also, you know, it's just about two guys talking about self-improvement and, uh, and, and career opportunities. Um, and, it, and it unlocked so many other opportunities for them and gave them the, the name and recognition that they needed uh, to be successful in other channels as well. And sure, you can make another podcast too. In fact, I encourage more people to make podcasts, but you're never going to replicate Seeking Wisdom specifically. Um, and one more example is a tool called FOMO, which helps you incorporate more social proof into your marketing. And they've produced over 80 case studies with their customers. I don't, that, that might be like a world record, to be honest, because I don't know any other company that has 80 case studies with their customers. And that's also something, sure, you could make, go out and make 80 case, uh, case studies with your customers, but that's something that's really unique to them, especially because obviously they're a social proof tool, right? Um, and the common thread that you'll notice between all these kind of channels and ideas um, is that they're born out of company values. Um, it's, it's more like value-driven marketing than it is, you know, data-driven marketing or insight-driven marketing or uh, product-led marketing. Uh, transparency, right, has been huge for the bare metrics and for the open startups, uh, including our own. And it's actually one of our highest converting uh, pages. Like all those pages, the open startups um, work really, really, really well for us. The Drift guys, right, they're all about self-improvement and challenging yourself. Uh, and that's what they talk about on the podcast. That's, that's a part of who they are as a company. FOMO, again, I, th I think I just mentioned, right, but they're a social proof tool. Their case studies are all forms of social proof. Um, so think about how you can create channels and these moats uh, from your values um, and the things, you know, that are unique to your company and product that no one else can replicate. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. And I think it's awesome that we close the loop here with customer research, which is, of course, where you started with the, uh, with the first factor on, on the market. And, and I think this whole model is, is fantastic and it really communicates I think the importance of brands, since that really spans all five factors, you need to understand your market and customers, deliver a great product experience that solves a big pain point, 
build a seamless customer journey across all touch points from awareness to retention and have a clear position with a distinct brand voice, own certain channels and have a unique approach to marketing. So I think this is a really great way to emphasize the importance of brand, particularly now in SaaS and B2B. And, and so from here, I would love to hear, like, how have you actually leveraged this framework and these five factors at Bare Metrics and how have they impacted what you're doing in terms of marketing, sales and growth? Mm, yeah, it's a great question. Um, one of the first things that I did uh, at Bare Metrics was to sit down with a lot of our customers and just talk with them. Um, which has inspired tons of ideas uh, and given me so much context. I feel like, you know, I think I started, uh, it, I started in December. And so basically like I couldn't get to a lot of customers before the holidays. So I had to wait about a month until I started really talking to a lot of customers. And immediately after I, I talked to like three customers, I feel like I knew like there was just so much conviction and there was so much insight that was just unlocked even from three conversations with people it gave me all the context i needed to really start thinking about stuff and give me the confidence uh you know to start kind of doing some brainstorming um and uh but another part of that market piece as well um is that you know since barometrics is really reliant on a payment processor and basically a data source you know like stripe for example to grab the data um we can grow by building new integrations and expanding into new markets too, right? And so that's also another thing, think about kind of um, your market and what are the kind of the dependencies uh, so that you can figure out how to go and grow in your market as well and expand into you know, new territories, new types of businesses as well. Um, and so that's been a really key strategy for us this year is releasing new integrations and um, partnering up with other companies uh, too. And so that's gonna continue to be a big, uh, oh, it has worked for us really well and it's gonna continue to work for us. Um, for the product, uh, we're, we're just going to continue to build more tools and expand our product offering for our customers. Uh, we have, like I said, a few add-on products that are um, really key to creating more value for our customers and subsequently increasing our average revenue per customer. Um, and so you can kind of think, you know, like, do I, uh, do I go get more customers and innovate for those new customers and attract, you know, build the things that they want? Or um, do I just keep building for my existing customer base and keep innovating for them and building them new tools that they need. Um, and that's kind of where we're seeing. That's kind of, uh, I think what's going to work really well for us. Um, we've got uh, cancellation insights as well, which is a tool that helps you um, really with customer research, uh, but it's an exit survey kind of tool basically where someone goes to cancel, they can select a reason and give some context and why they're canceling. And then you can also automate some emails back to them personalized, personalized based on the reason why they said they canceled, try to win them back or, or maybe learn more about why they canceled them. Uh, and so for the product, we're just going to continue to to keep building for our current customer base. Um, for the model, one of the things that we did when I first uh, when I first started kind of the next like first big project probably uh, was redesign the onboarding wizard, um, which has been immensely valuable because it hadn't been updated in a couple years probably, um, but it also didn't do a great job of of really holding someone's hand and setting the right expectations upfront as well. And so um, redesign that has been, has been really important, but we're also incorporating a lot of other ways to sort of start a conversation with trialing users, um, whether it's offering a demo um, for a 15% lifetime discount, if they just sit down with us and kind of walk through things together. Um, I offer to send a personalized video to them using their own kind of dashboard and own metrics. Uh, so I'll walk them through their account telling them what I think about their metrics and give them, give them some pointers maybe as well. Um, I even do like free strategy calls. It's, it's been super fun, right? Because I get to sit down with a lot of these 
SaaS companies and uh, growth leaders, founders, even operators. And I usually touch on like their landing page or onboarding or their pricing, uh, which kind of like big three and, and also really kind of easy points. Uh, just kind of reference, you know, what was someone who's a little bit newer to your company. Um, and so starting you know, building those relationships with those customers while they're experiencing the product has been really important for us because now it's not just a, um, it's not just a, a matter of, um, you know, which features do you have and how much do you cost? It's who can I trust and who's going to help me? And, um, and who can I rely on, right? When I need something, um, and we want to be those, those, that, that company and those people for them. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, getting, actually getting crystal clear on how we communicate to prospective customers and, and the messaging positioning that, you know, why customers should choose us over competitors is actually something that I'm really focused on right now. And, and we're rolling out a lot of, uh, kind of campaigns and assets around that. Um, and so I don't have a ton to like talk about on that specifically, but, um, maybe the next time I come on the podcast and, uh, and I think I mentioned, you know, a few examples of some of the channels as well that, uh, we're just going to continue to lean on like the open startups movement and transparency. Um, you know, SEO and content marketing has been huge for us and, and Josh's experiences uh, running bare metrics and just being open about what we've learned, what we've experienced, the things we've gone through, um, the tools that we use even. Um, and so I've done some writing, you know, around pricing, uh, around, you know, your growth strategy, uh, a bunch of other topics, right? Frameworks for innovation. Uh, we're just trying to be basically be more helpful to our customers um, and continue to lean on the things that have been working for us uh, in the past too. Yeah, that's awesome and great to get an insight into how you're operating and how you apply this model to your own marketing. And I think this whole world is fascinating. So where can marketers go to learn more about first principles and mental models to help them think a little differently? Um, great question. Yeah, I think uh, there, there's a great book called, I think it's, it's called Super Thinking, um, actually by uh, the founder of DuckDuckGo, Gabriel um, I'm going to butcher his name. I'm going to try it. No, it's Gabriel. And I think it's his wife as well. Also, I'm not butchering that. Um, but that's <laughs> a great book on mental models. Um, Julian and uh, Julian Shapiro and James Clear also have great blog posts on mental models. And then I'm actually working on a little like site and course uh, on mental models for marketers too. It's just mentalmodelsformarketers.com. If you want to drop, your, drop in your email and I should have some, some updates pretty soon, hopefully as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, great to hear you have your own plans as well and, and own resources on that as well. So definitely go check that out to learn more. And yeah, I think this was fantastic. And now we could move to the closing questions and our fast five challenge. So all I will do is ask you five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So Corey, are you ready for this? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So first question, the one book you'd recommend. Uh, this is Marketing by Seth Godin. Okay, nice. There's been quite a few book recommendations already in, the, in this episode, but good to have one more. Uh, second question, yeah. a SaaS company you love and why? Um, Webflow. Man, I love the tool. I have like all my sites there, but I think they, they've got all the factors. They've got a huge market, uh, customer focus from the beginning, an amazing product vision, uh, really ambitious. <laughs> and uh, you know, they, start, they start free, they're very affordable, hyper-focused on designers and, and really can clearly articulate and empathize um, with that market. Um, and then they have some really defensible channels, I think like SEO, their community, their showcase of templates um, and free kind of resources, affiliates and partners. Um, I'm also just a big fan of the company as well. Nice. Third question, favorite place to read about marketing online? Twitter, to be honest. Uh, I don't do a ton of like, you know, skimming through blog posts and, and a ton of reading. I still do, obviously, but I find that you get these little golden nuggets 
you know, from, from certain people and, and thought leaders in the space. So you don't really get, don't really get shared anywhere else. Um, and I've, I've also been really uh, appreciating how short tweets are too, because some blog posts don't need to be so long. I'm guilty of that too. I write these monster <laughs> blog posts, um, but it's refreshing sometimes to just be able to skim through something and be like, wow, that was really interesting. Yeah, got to go 10X. Um, fourth question, most important growth metric? A quick ratio. Um, I, I think it's, it's my favorite metric and uh, it's the ultimate test of if you're growing or contracting as a business and it really gives you uh, a, a quick kind of like finger in the air, trying to test the weather of, of how things are going in your business. Perfect. And then fifth and final question, your one piece of advice for fellow marketers. Yeah. Um, learn to be more strategic. And um, I think the mental models and frameworks are, are a huge tool for that and have been really a game changer for me. Uh, I think it's, it's really the, the quickest way to level up how you think, produce your best work, um, produce really quick work too also. Um, and think for yourself, you know, instead of always kind of looking to someone else or, um, or copying or kind of always having to draw from other places, um, it, it really helps you to be a little bit more creative and original and, uh, and innovative. Yeah, perfect. So Corey, a massive thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about the five factors of growth for profitable SaaS businesses, mental models, and first principles thinking in marketing. This was just super awesome and it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Edward. It's been fun. That was Corey Haynes on the five factors of growth for profitable SaaS businesses, first principles thinking and mental models in marketing. Now you can find Corey on Twitter at Corey Haynes CEO. And if you enjoyed this episode, then we'd absolutely love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As ever, if you have any thoughts or feedback, then you're always welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward or connect on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency, Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different things.